are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are so excited tonight. We are going to be discussing accessing the best level of care. How do you know and where do you go? And for this episode, we have Daria Montgomery from Recovery Ways joining us. And we are thrilled to have an expert with us to help us figure out this whole area of the ASAM criteria, the dimensions of care and patient advocacy. So Paula is going to introduce Daria to us and we're going to get started. I like to gush about our guests, but that's because we just have the best guests. And Daria is just one of my favorite humans ever. I met Daria and I think it was 2015, huh, Daria? We actually worked together at the University of Utah in the inpatient hospital, working with patients with substance use disorder. And Daria was just, she's just an amazing advocate, liaison, case manager, and Everyone in our program just knew that Daria was the source of all knowledge on where to give people where they needed to go. But more importantly, she was the she was the glue that kept patients coming to our program and kept their families connected and knowing what was going on. And I just had to always be like, go to Daria's office, just call Daria, what you know, whatever people needed. And that's such a skill set that we often miss in clinical and medical settings. We just always think about the clinical acumen. And so to work with someone like Daria was really invaluable for me, and I appreciate her role. Not to say, sorry, you're a very well-educated human. Sorry, you got a master's degree at Georgetown University. I didn't know that about you. You're well-educated as well as um, incredibly emotionally intelligent. So sorry, I forgot to mention that. We're really excited to talk to you tonight because I couldn't think of anyone better to talk about this topic of how do you choose the right program and how do you get people where they need to go when they need treatment and how do you help their families navigate that process and also a little bit about the science behind it. So, Thank you, Paula. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of the Addiction Files. Let's just, let's get started and let's, let's just talk about it. Like where do we begin asking getting people to the right place right where um well thanks again so i i love your question of let's just get right into it and where do we begin because i think that's oftentimes where our patients also get started and i think that's you know where that question starts for them is been is helpful in figuring out what the next step is if that question of oh my gosh i'm drinking maybe a little more wine than i should be and it's just sort of this contemplative thing you're thinking about it on your morning drive or if you're finding yourself in an emergency room um you know and, and needing medical treatment so i think where we begin is for our patients you know exactly where do we begin so um whenever i'm first contacting or working with a patient. And you know, that that comes from different angles. That may be directly from the patient. It may be from their spouse or parent or sibling or a friend or from a provider. So one of the first things I look for is I just ask the patient, uh, you know, or or whomever's talking to me, what their perspective is and, and what's happening so they can present that. As quickly as possible, if I'm not already talking to the patient, my goal is always to get on the phone with that patient or sit down with that patient as soon as possible, because 
I think the narrative that we have and the presentation that our patients have on paper can sometimes be different than their personal um, perspective on what's happening to their life. So I try and talk with the patient about what that, you know, what's going on and what's causing them to want to figure out the next thing. Um, the most important thing I think medically is to make sure that the patient is safe, right? So if it's the substance, it's figuring out how much they're using, how much they're drinking, if they're able to go without, if if they do, if they're if they're really uncomfortable when that happens, how long that's been going on for, how long they've been drinking or using, maybe what method that that's happening for them because you know a, a, someone who's maybe smoking heroin versus injecting heroin or combining that with other substances, so figuring out you know that portion of it and whether or not they need detox, um, how quickly we need to get medical intervention. From there, you know, I always look at treatment as four levels, you know, on the from least restrictive to most restrictive. I think whenever we talk about treatment, people typically start to immediately think of the movies and what rehab means, quote unquote. And now I got to go away for 28 days. And, and, and really, that's not the reality. There's so many steps and so many options and resources in between there that just because you're reaching out for help or you're reaching out for your help for your loved one doesn't necessarily mean that you're now going to be moved out of the house and into this confined facility. At the least restrictive level of care, we talk about general outpatient GOP. So having a medical provider and or a therapist, an individual therapist of whatever credentialing. And to me, that's the most important piece of the puzzle because that relationship has the opportunity for longevity. And whether or not you end up utilizing these higher levels of care, it, the recommendation is always that you'd somehow continue in GOP. So if the patient has um, an outpatient primary care doctor who's managing that for them, and if that primary care doctor is you know, asking for help, you know, maybe they wanted to hand that over to an addiction medicine specialist or to a psychiatrist. All of that would still be under GOP. So it's just appointments, maybe once a month, maybe twice a month. But the frequency of that is is, is limited. In GOP, we also have individual, you know, individual therapy. So the patient may see their therapist once a week, um, and, and in some cases, maybe twice a week, but they're they're keeping that touch point. But really, at most, you're looking at um, you're looking at appointments that are sporadic like that. And then a step above that, we, there's IOP, intensive outpatient programming. IOP is um, group therapy, specifically group therapy. Uh, there's no medical or, or individual clinical attention in that piece. In IOP, you're talking about three or four times a week, typically about three or four hours at a time. So recovery ways, that's Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays, and either from one to four in the afternoon or from six to nine in the evening. And we typically encourage our patients to pick one time slot or the other so they're not jumping back and forth because that sense of community and the process that happens with that group is so important. So GOP, IOP. Typically, if a patient is coming to me, you know, if I'm if we're looking at IOP. I'll make sure that if they don't already have outpatient providers that I'm helping them figure out where they can find that through their insurance or, you know, accessibility through their, you know, what's close to their home proximity. Um, those two are a really great pairing together. Um, a step above IOP, you have 
partial hospitalization, PHP, or day treatment. Day treatment serves as like it's a full-time job. Those patients are coming in for treatment Monday through Friday, usually nine to five, maybe eight to four. Um, and then PHP, true to its true to its name, it's with partial hospitalization, you do have access on top of the programming, the group therapy. Um, you also have a weekly doctor's a medical provider, and you're also meeting weekly with an individual therapist. And that sometimes PHP serves as this transition steps from, from residential down so that when you complete residential, you're not just suddenly going right back out into the world with everything as it was before. Or a lot of patients directly admit just to day treatment. So it's not like you have to go through one or the other. It's not this linear format necessarily. At the most restrictive level, we're talking about residential treatment. That is like the movies of 28 or 30 days. Um, but residential treatment doesn't necessarily need to be that. It, you know, we have, for example, anytime a VA refers a patient, their authorization is for 45 days. Whether or not the patient utilizes that for 45 days is up to them or the clinician as they work through that. But that's 45 days. Some programs maybe 90 days. And that so it just sort of is individualized and different. At recovery ways, the minimum for residential treatment is two weeks. Um, that's assuming that everything else is sort of dialed in and mellowed out. And we're just addressing this single topic or single diagnosis. So those are the four residential, PHP day treatment, IOP, and GOP. And of course, detox before all of that. Right. Okay. And so detox before, because sometimes people want to go straight to treatment or sometimes people think that detox or medically managed withdrawal is treatment, right? I mean, That's I right. You, yeah. You come across that a lot. Darlene, you come across that a lot too, right? Even in the outpatient Frequently. Setting, yeah. where we're seeing folks providing ambulatory withdrawal management, a lot of times people will, or families will erroneously think, oh, well, this is great. I'm now that I'm like off of alcohol or I've transitioned to buprenorphine or whatever medication and they're no longer experiencing withdrawal, that the work is done. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's not always true. So how do you how do you typically talk to families and patients and determine and refer people for withdrawal management or detox? Yeah, Paula, and I'm so glad you bring that up because that's almost always people calculate that in as part of their quote unquote treatment is their time in the hospital. And the way I describe it to patients is look, your time in the detox and detox is similar to think about if you went to the emergency room, that the role of detox is really just to get you out of the woods, make sure you're physically safe and you're not at risk for seizures, or you're not so horribly uncomfortable and crawling out of your skin that you can't focus on the next thing. Detox is really sort of this, this preliminary thing leading up to what you access in terms of treatment. In treatment, you're going into the places that led you to drink or to use in the first place. We're talking about damage done to the nervous system, like through the somatic experiencing. We're talking about trauma that's underneath that, that's leading you. What are you hiding from or running from? Or what are you experiencing that's leading you to want to numb it out? Or Maybe it's the absence of all that. You're bored or you're having so much fun, but it's just sort of an excess. But I, I I try and preface that with my patients. Like, while you're absolutely right, you've been in detox for six or seven days, that's actually not treatment, even though you may be going to some of those groups. Their role is really just to make sure you're physically safe and you're cognitively in a place where you can benefit from what treatment offers you. 
Right. And so that's a good treatment program. I'll always make sure that you have that stabilization before you really dive in, whether it's it's outpatient or IOP or GOP, excuse me, or residential PHP in between. And likewise, when you are being treated, if you're the patient or if you're referring someone for detox or medically managed withdrawal, they should have caseworkers and the team should be helping the person find treatment, right? They should be, the whole goal is like, okay, this is the step in order to get you to actually do the work to find the underlying to address the underlying addiction. This is not just the treatment in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. In, a, in the best case scenario, you have a disposition planner, um, a case manager, a social worker, someone that's helping you figure out what do we do next with this? Because this is a pretty, um, this is a pretty impactful moment in your life. And if you don't actually do the next thing, really you've put a bandaid on this and you're not really addressing why you're bleeding in the first place. Um, and, and, you know, a lot goes into that because as you're, it can, it can be a lot to think about, well, what do I do next? What is the right level of care, which is so great that we're doing this episode tonight. So we can sort of unpack that a bit. But I think one of the important pieces for us uh, as providers is to think about access to treatment. Unfortunately, not all insurances make it readily possible for our patients to be able to get into treatment or there's barriers to what that insurance is willing to do. So in that, in that role of when I have a patient who's going through detox, I'm looking at what their insurance is willing to cover. Do they have reliable transportation? Do they have a safe place to go back and live? Um, there's, there's several different components that I'll look at to think, and, and then I'll present those to the patient and, you know, hopefully try and help them tease that out a bit to figure out what is the next best option for them. Absolutely. And there's all kinds of other issues to bring into mind, right? Like, does the patient even live in an area where all of those levels of care exist? I'm currently in an area where we have nothing greater than level one. Mm -hmm. So we have no, you know, and so that limits us unless people are willing to travel three and a half Mm -hmm. hours. Or do people not want to go to treatment? Like it might be that they should go, but they don't want to go. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. or they're unfunded completely. It's not even a matter of their insurance not paying, but they're unfunded. And we could have a whole nother episode on parity and why yeah. insurance companies don't pay for this. But anyway, we're not even going to go down that road. Yeah. But I'm okay. So the one thing to bring up, like I love how you described the four levels of care in a really understandable way for those listeners who are like studying for their addiction boards Uh, whether it's addiction psychiatry or addiction medicine, or for those of you who want to get into the more kind of nitty gritty, there are specific ASAM levels of care, continuum of care that are a little bit more granular. And Darlene, do you want to talk about those really quickly, like in terms of levels 0.5 up to levels four? So that way people are just introduced to those ideas. When when we have what we're describing as the 0.5, and you'll have to help me out here, Paula, we're talking about early intervention. And that's what you're talking about when you have somebody kind of in the pre-contemplative or prevention. That's what we're thinking. This isn't even outpatient. So that's what we call 0.5. And then what Paul is talking about, that's kind of the world where we work in is level one is outpatient services. Then you move up into level two, which is intensive outpatient or what some people call partial hospitalization. And you have 
intensive outpatient services or partial hospitalization services, day treatment, you are having more engagement, but still you don't have, you're not having medical supervision. You're not providing 24 hour care. Right. And those are the two levels that Daria talked about. So intensive IOP is the, you know, three or four times a week for three hours. Yes. That's 2.1. And then 2.5 is the next level up partial PHP or partial hospitalization day treatment, where you're there at least 20 hours a week. So the distinction is IOP is at least nine hours a week. And partial hospitalization is at least 20 hours a week. Yes. But less than 24 hours care is their kind of criteria. Then we get into level 3.1, which is considered what they call clinically managed low intensity residential treatment at this level consists of either a group home where people live however treatment's only required to be five hours per week you're you maybe just will be doing group meetings one night a week or something like that group and then level 3.3 is clinically managed high intensity with population specific services So this moves at a little slower pace for people with cognitive functioning issues or people with developmental disabilities. So that's, again, a little bit more of 24-hour services, but it is not as intensive services. Then we get to level 3.5, which is clinically managed residential services. These are designed for people with serious psychological or social issues. And this is the most common type of probably residential treatment that we see. And they need 24-hour oversight. And these people are considered at risk of imminent harm. Level 3.7 is medically managed high-intensity inpatient treatment. These services are people who need intensive medical or psychological monitoring. So that's the difference between 3.5 and 3.7 is it's medical and psychological. But they're in a 24-hour setting, but these people do not need daily physician interaction like you would in a hospital setting. So you typically have medical Uh, you know, oversight, but not necessarily daily. Level four, provide 24-hour nursing nursing care and daily physician visits. People in this level care need daily physician monitoring along with 24-hour oversight. What we call the the ASAM continuum of care, we use what we'll go into the dimensions of deciding what level of care and what options do you have for a patient. Basically, what the ASAM criteria is, is it's basically six dimensions are are designed to create a holistic, a a biopsychosocial assessment of individual to be used for service planning and treatment across all services and level of care. So that's why we use the six dimensions. And these six dimensions are, we have dimensions one, two, and three that are looking at their acute intoxication and withdrawal potential, their medical conditions, emotional conditions, their readiness to change, and then the relapse potential and living environment. Two pitfalls that we see, and I see this frequently because payers use this as criteria sometimes to, I guess it goes both ways to approve and deny services. 
you kind of will go through the dimensions and you'll kind of like add up scores. And we we tend to weight one dimensions one, two, and three a little bit higher. And you need to look at each dimension individually and very carefully. And it's not an average of the scores. It's not designed to be used that way. So be very careful about that. And I think that's important, especially in our documentation, that we're not using it that way. Dimension one is what we call the acute intoxication or withdrawal potential. This really goes into somebody's previous past and current experience of substance use and withdrawal. This helps us determine, is does this person need to be in a like hospitalized for acute detox purposes first? Do they need to be in that higher level? So for instance, do they meet like a level four criteria because of history of DTs, severe withdrawal? Do they have, is this somebody who's coming in for opiate withdrawal, but they're also co-using benzodiazepines. So we have a risk of possibly withdrawal from that. So those are things like that. We need to look at past and current use, other issues like that, and previous withdrawal experiences. Dimension two, which is also very important, is biomedical conditions and complications. What's their overall health history and current physical health needs? You look at, you know, you may have somebody who maybe 40 years old, but because of other medical is- issues, they're medically more like a 60 or 70 years old because of COPD or poor nutrition. Person may also be an uncontrolled diabetic, hypertensive. They may have severe heart disease or heart failure. That makes them a very complicated withdrawal and much more difficult to manage in a setting where you don't have medical personnel or monitoring. Dimension three is emotion, emotional, behavioral, cognitive conditions and complications. So you're looking at their mental health history, current cognitive and mental health needs. How is this person going to interact? Can they be, would they benefit from group therapy or does this person have cognitive effects? Is this person actively hallucinating and you know, putting somebody who has schizoaffective disorder that's uncontrolled and putting them in a low level of care and just having them do group therapies may not be beneficial for them. And not and the same thing, just having them in an outpatient may not also work. So that that's where we just have to look. What So that's why those dimensions one, two, and three are ones we have to be very thorough on evaluating and look at those carefully. Dimension four is readiness to change. And I think this is one that changes the most throughout sometimes their stay. So that's important to evaluate because if you have someone who's really struggling, they may need a much more supportive environment to help them in that process. But I don't think this should be used as an exclusion criteria to deny treatment. Dimension five is their relapse, continued use, or continued problem potential. So this is exploring their needs and influence their risk for a relapse or return to use. 
this again looks at like their past patterns and their triggers. What are their potential issues that they would experience? And so what placement would help them to be most successful? And then dimension six, and I think this one is also should be very carefully evaluated and is really important is their recovery and their recovering and living environment. So what is their living situation? What are their support people? What places can support them? And on the opposite, what can hinder their recovery? So does this person have a actively using partner? Do they have domestic violence? Does this person suffer from homelessness? Are they coming here for treatment, but then they actually live 100 miles away? So what is going to be our options for accessing treatment? So telling them to come to a day treatment or an IOP, but it's transportation is an issue. So that should also come into this when you're looking at the recovering environment. All of those things need to be evaluated and they need to be documented well. And we need to make sure that when we're evaluating a patient as we're taking into all of these dimensions. And I think that's really helpful. Totally. No, it's really important. So like based on the ASAM criteria, then people are advised to go to a certain level of treatment and insurance kind of uses that as qualification, right? Daria, is that true? Do you find right, that Right, exactly. Um, thanks for bringing that up, Paula. So in, in terms of the documentation, it's it's best where whenever, you know, in an ideal scenario, the provider's listing, their recommendation, the patient's on board and motivated for that level of care, their insurance is supportive, the family's supportive, and that's where we go next. It becomes more tricky when that's, you know, when one or two of those factors don't necessarily align. But in for us, when we're trying to seek authorizations, whenever you're, the provider's listing that that recommendation, when we have pushed for that, like, look, this is what the medical provider is, is recommending, that gives us a little more teeth when we're when we're requesting that authorization. Typically, when they put in that sort, you know, authorization for a highest level of care, especially for residential treatment, they're still doing utilization reviews every seven days, every fourteen days, to make sure that the patient still needs that specific level of care. So then the conversation becomes, well, what if? the recommendation isn't necessarily what the patient wants to do. And then that's where we get, we get to thinking about, well, okay, so why, first off, where, you know, why are you here? What's the presenting? I think one of the, I'm glad you brought up all of the dimensions, darling, because in terms of the, the, the propensity for relapse, what are the chances of their relapse? And sometimes patients are there, you're they're always thinking about staying closer to home. You know, I want something that my parents can drive to and come visit me, or my boyfriend can come and see me, or my kids can come see me on visitation. Uh, and and you know, obviously that's that's great where it works out. But sometimes when you're working with addiction and substance use, you're also looking at what's the playground, who are the playmates, and what are the playthings. And it's not necessarily the worst thing to remove the patient from that playground. So while you may be a resident of Salt Lake, it may not be the worst idea to go to Florida or to California for treatment, just long enough to gain that traction and um, get, get your bearings about you when you come back for outpatient levels of care. 
That's interesting. I've never heard of that. That's really good. I'm going to use that. What's the playground? What are the playthings? Who are the playmates? <laughs> that's really interesting. And that's that's really good, right? That's giving people a time to reset. So what do you what else? So besides the formal like criteria that we use to determine what's the level of care, what else do you consider when you're thinking about where to refer a patient or where to place a patient? And what should patients and families be thinking of? Um, when they're deciding where to go for treatment, what are the what are the things help you decide which level of uh, people should go to? Yeah, you know my my goal, my objective is certainly to I, I don't want to add to that patient's stressors. You know, if it's financial, if it's being away from their kiddos, if it's whatever, that's a really important piece of the puzzle for me because if they're constantly in this state of distress and thinking about uh, the ramifications of what it means for them to be in this treatment. And you're not really making a whole lot of progress. You're not really doing a whole lot of service. So I personally look at that like, yes, could maybe they come to treatment, but does that mean that they're going to end up paying, you know, $15,000 for this and they have the risk of losing their home? So that's that's an element that I look at. In, in the scenario where the patient has the means and they have the support to do that, I, you know, it's, when we're looking at treatment, especially here in Utah, Utah has, we're, we're lucky in that we have a number of treatment facilities. So how do you figure out what's the best one for you? I always encourage the patient or their families to look at a, several different factors. For one, I would say whenever possible, try and get a tour so you can get a feel for it firsthand. I think it's important to make sure that the facility is actually geared towards treating addiction. Um, and, that, and that's part of their emphasis, because what we often hear is this term of dual diagnosis. Um, what does that actually mean? Um, dual diagnosis typically means that you have patients of both primary mental health disorders as well as primary substance use disorders all under one roof. At Recovery Ways, they have two separate buildings. So it's two separate teams, two separate buildings. Not to say that patients with mental health disorders don't also may have some flavor of substance use. They may be drinking or using to cope with that, but their primary diagnosis is that mental health, is the depression, is the anxiety, the OCD, the PTSD. Whereas for us, the, our substance use building, the primary presenting issue is the substance use. They still also have trauma. They have grief. They have all of the depression, anxiety, OCD, what have you. But the primary focus is substance use. That um, is a pretty important determining factor. Um, in terms of as, as from the medical perspective, I think it's important to think about whether or not this program is an MAT program, a medication assisted treatment. And, and what does that mean for that particular program? Do they only use Vivitrol, Naloxone, Naltrexone, or do they use buprenorphine um, and Suboxone and those interventions? And even when they say that they're, they maybe use buprenorphine, you may want to ask, because if we have a patient with an opiate use disorder who has been stabilized for on 16 milligrams of Suboxone, now they're trying to get treatment for alcohol. You want to make sure that that program that you're going to is comfortable continuing that 16 milligrams of Suboxone um, and that they're not going to try and take you off because now you have a different problem on your hands. So that component of MIT is really important in deciding which program you're going to. Cannot stress the importance of that. We run into this frequently, and that's probably a common reason for patients leaving treatment early. Yeah, because of withdrawal symptoms, because their medication was discontinued. 
Absolutely. Right, Paula, because they, they end up back in our office and, and it's a it's a really common problem. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's yeah. that comes down to having good clinical and medical directorship, I think, and and being able to rely on people who have evidence-based practices to take care of people with the right medications and that the programs don't have these weird or antiquated rules about what people can and can't take while they're in treatment. Right. And that goes back to, um, Darlene, what we were talking about earlier in terms of detox and what does that mean? Because if you're physically uncomfortable, if you're in treatment to, to treat this alcohol concern or the benzodiazepine concern that's now presenting, and you're so uncomfortable because the medications aren't adjusted. I mean, you're not really benefiting from that. You're not in treatment. You're so physically uncomfortable that you can't engage on that level where it's going to benefit you. So that's a really important piece, which for me ties into figuring out, I, I, I always encourage my patients to vet out and ask, does this program have one medical director? And how often is that medical director physically in the building to check in on the patients? Because it's not uncommon to hear of programs having one medical provider. That provider comes in once a week, lays eyes on all the patients, meets with them really quickly, and then that's it. They're done for that particular week. A good facility will have hopefully at least a nursing staff there. They have more than one physician. They have a, a psychiatry accounted for. They have you know family medicine. So good, a good medical component and making sure that the medication pieces are adjusted or are managed carefully. The other piece is I ask the patient, like, what is your expectation? How often does it, you know, do you ask how many times am I going to meet with my therapist this week? By guidelines, you meet with your therapist once a week, your individual therapist, that individual therapy appointment, depending on the therapist or the program can be utilized as a couple session or a family session after the patient has sort of gotten their bearings about them after the first couple of weeks, but asking if that family component is something that they're seeking. And then, so how many times do you meet with your therapist? And, or how often do you have a touch point with that therapist? Because you may only have one individual session, but that therapist is doing three process groups each week. So you're actually having access to them four or five times a week. The family education piece is important to me. I think that involving the family or the or the home setting, the significant other, the sober friends, that and and making sure that the family, the home setting, understands how to support that patient as well as taking care of themselves. The number of patients that are in that particular setting or in that particular level of care. So, if a treatment center, for example, has. 40, their census is 40 for residential treatment. Well, you've got to make sure you're comfortable with being in a milieu of 39 other patients. And how does that feel for you? Or do you prefer a smaller setting? Those are those are the sorts of things that I, I, I try and encourage patients to look at. When a patient is coming to me, trying to get figure out whether or not, for example, the program I work at is the right fit for them. I'm also looking not only to figure out whether we're the best fit for the patient, but also whether or not our current milieu is the best fit for that patient. For example, if we've had a patient who's been traumatized by an interaction with the police, well, if I have a law enforcement patient also in that milieu, that particular milieu may not be the best fit for the patient. So there's different perspectives to, to look at in terms of vetting out whether or not this is the right program. Mm. We do have a very, you know, most programs have a really careful screening process. They do 
an admission type screening in the beginning. And oftentimes they'll even do a biopsychosocial, a clinician will do that before the patient even admits because either the insurance is requiring that or we just want more information to make sure that we're able to serve this patient as best as possible. Medical components, Darlene, as you were talking about before, um, are a pretty major factor. Increasingly, you know, we see patients who need oxygen at night or they're insulin dependent diabetic or, you, you know, they've had some sort of a, a heart issue or lung issue. So those sorts of components from the medical piece are all things that we're looking at to make sure that we're the right fit. And then from there to figure out what level of care, right? So while we may, you know, that patient, maybe the recommendation is for residential, but you have a patient who is adamant, absolutely hundred percent. not. I'm not doing that. Okay. So then the next thing is to figure out, well, what's, what is that barrier? Is it because they don't have a leave of absence? Unfortunately, that that's a really important piece of the puzzle that we need to look at. They step away from that work. They're looking at not only losing their job, but also losing their insurance, which is paying for them to access treatment. Maybe they can't do it, or they have little kiddos at home that they can't leave. Or one of the one common ones that I hear is they have a dog or a cat at home that they can't leave. And who do I leave that with? Fortunately, there's resources in the community. There's at least one that um, now I think they have a wait list on, but there's some resources that way that we look at. But I try and look at what are the barriers. So what is the recommendation and what are the barriers to getting to that recommendation? And if we can't remove that, then we look at the next best. So, okay, for example, if the recommendation is residential, but the patient can maybe do day treatment, they just have to be home on nights and weekends to take care of their whatever, or they can't leave. So then you're helping them get that as much out of that treatment in that level of care. Um, and if it's outpatient, like intensive outpatient, it's making sure that they're paired with a good outpatient provider. Again, a good psychiatrist, addiction medicine specialist, good individual therapist, just trying to meet, check off as many of those needs as possible and still not be disruptive to the patient's life altogether. I mean, one of the most common barriers I always heard when I was doing uh, detox with you, Daria, is people's pets, like people, and I still hear it actually, people just, they have a hard time having someone take care of their cats and dogs, you know, even more than people, like even more than kids or uh, is that, that that's it. We need to have more services for people to have their animals taken care of when they go to treatment. Than oh, anything. yes. That would be so great. <laughs> Somebody yeah. listening out there needs to start a program. A nonprofit. Yeah, yes. a nonprofit yes, to go and do pet retrieval, like get the pets out of the house and make sure they're safe and take care of them in a really kind way until someone's out of treatment. Because, you know, that's true. For, well, that's true for people who get incarcerated too, right? We need to have those pets mm -hmm. taken care of. And so what about, okay, so what about the families? Like, how do you link the families into this whole decision-making process and helping the patient arrive at the right place and the right time? And how do you support the family? Yeah. So this is the part that I'm most passionate about. I, I, I really love working with families and it, because to me, that's, I, I think any patient who has a support group at home, that's so invested in wanting to get that for themselves. They're, they're so fortunate to have that. Not everyone has it. One quick thing I was going to add to our previous conversation in terms of figuring out or barriers is you know, we are, we're also looking at, you know, this is the addictive mind. So how many of these barriers are actual barriers? 
and how many of these barriers are conceived barriers. Oh yeah. That's or a really maybe, good point. <laughs> yeah. That the patient's bringing up and that can be endless. You know, they may, no matter what solution you find, they will find some reason why they can't do that. And at some point, some, you know, that having that frank conversation that, you know, this, your brain has geared itself and has trained itself to look for ways to find this euphoria, to find this escape, to find whatever it is, this, this, this effect is. So it's really sort of challenging that on, on your own front in terms of, is this an actual barrier or is this something I'm allowing to become a barrier? But that, you know, that does, that actually segues really well into what we're talking about in terms of the family support. I actually got an email just this week from a lady who she said, in 2019, I came and sat in on this family support group you had at the U and all these years later, my loved one is finally ready to, to get into care. Can you help us now? So, you know, that the importance of having a family member or someone that is that anchor for you and not, you know, there's this really great book called Beyond Addiction that I sort of use as my Bible when I'm working with families, because it's all mm-hmm. about compassionate boundaries. In, previously, you know, I think in years past, and maybe still even now that we, we have this sort of this, either my way or the highway, it's either you either go to rehab and get help or you're out the door. Mm-hmm. And that may work. Um, but I always try and encourage families to think about what are your intended, you know, what are the intended consequences of putting that limit? And what are some unintended consequences that you may set your loved one up for? And are you willing to have that actually happen? Okay, I'm going to interrupt you because this is so important. And I think it's because culture and society and I mean, there's so much to unpack around this. And I think it has to do with just decades or centuries of stigma and the way that we've viewed addiction and as and, and as what it is, like it's a moral failing and people are doing something wrong, inherently wrong by drinking or using. And so the only way to approach them is by just saying, you have to do this. Otherwise, we're just cutting you out of our lives and that's the end of that. And I think it also, of course, that's very short-sighted. It also has to do with just pure frustration, being exhausted, being out of resources, trying to draw boundaries, and how do families navigate that? I can only imagine, okay? Yeah. I don't have, I, I feel like I haven't had that lived experience of having a very close family member go through this, but coming around to what you're saying and helping people navigate how to still be in an unconditionally loving and supportive space, but still hold a boundary. Like that's the clue. And how do you do that? And who teaches you how to do that? How many parents have we all spoken to who are just at the end of their rope and they don't know what to do? And families who are, we've spoken to many, many patients who have no family support, all their family have exited the arena because out of, for whatever the reasons are, all the negative consequences. And so that is huge and the role that that people can play in helping families realize that. Absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, their their frustrations are valid. I don't, you know, in saying this, I absolutely don't mean to like discredit or take that away from them. This is your sometimes you're talking about years and you're talking about significant damage done Arms. to the and damage done to relationships and lack of trust. All of that is is mm-hmm. is well founded. But they have every right to feel exactly what they're feeling. Sure. So what do we do to help them support and get through that while still trying to figure out how to help their loved ones? So the, to me, those are almost two, com- they are two completely different things. And in my eyes, they both need really the same amount of attention. Whenever I have a family that, you know, I 
I, after I figure out what we're going to do to help the loved one, the patient, I'll always circle back and talk with that loved one who maybe was the one that reached out to me. Hey, now that they're okay, are you okay? What can we do to help you? My resources are one, I love USARA, uh, Utah Support Advocate for Recovery Awareness, Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness. They have a really fantastic family education component. And then also helping that family member who is most traumatized, whether that's the spouse or the parent or the child or the significant other, do they have an individual therapist? Do they maybe need a psychiatrist or someone that they can talk to? That's the truth, right? So for those people who don't live in Utah and don't have the equivalent of USARA, which is a peer-run, peer-led program, which provides peer support coaching directly to people who have substance use disorder and who may be in recovery or may not. They also do these family groups. Um, I think this kind of organization probably exists in other states and countries. Well, I think that's very similar to like Al-Anon and we have, I mean, which is national, which is very supportive. I mean, that's for family members. And NAMI, I think has something. Yes nationally of course yeah the great support the idea is just to build this community right for, for yeah. the, you're not the only person suffering or struggling through this and how do we get you connected to other folks that have either been there or are currently going through that so a couple of things i think just circling back like how about for providers how do we vet programs so what about accreditation what do some of those mean? And then how do you, how do we evaluate what's going to be the best programs? In terms of licensing in the state of Utah, you go through um, the Department of Health and Human Services for licensing. And then that program has the option of um, then also going through joint commission for accreditation. And I think there's also one other one called CARF. The, there's state audits once a year and then joint commission does audits once every three years. In terms of licensing piece, that's sort of what 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 exists there. For figuring out what's best for the for the patient, I think the first thing I would start out is narrow that pool down by figuring out what is covered by their insurance. Fortunately, a majority of insurances are or co- treatment programs are covered by insurance. The other thing I would look at is to figure out whether or not this program has a continuum of care. Are you only looking at this facility for residential treatment? Or are you looking at a facility that offers residential day treatment, IOP, and maybe even, you know, at least has case management or alumni there to help figure out disposition planning? What, you know, what's the emphasis? Is the emphasis substance use? Is the emphasis mental health? Or is it a merged setting of a dual diagnosis? What's the clinical team like? How many clinicians, how many therapists, um, LCSWs, you know, CMHCs, SUTSIs, how many therapists are there? Um, what's the caseload looking like? It, regardless of census, like how many are on your particular panel or in your, on your caseload? In terms of, you know, disposition planning, that's such an important piece when you're talking about the ultimate outcome, because I would be lying, any of us would be lying if we just said, you know, residential is the fix-all, be-all, you just need these 30 days and then you're good to go. Really, the, the process of ensuring the best outcome, or, or, you know, at least that being your end goal, is, is following through that continuum of care. If your patient is in residential, are they able to do day treatment? And then, for example, if we have a patient coming to us from out of state, we have the option of them, 
to have free room and board as part of the PHP portion. So they can continue to live on campus, but they have a little more leeway in terms of leaving for lunch or they have a curfew, they have to be back. There's also the IOP right there. We can offer some GOP. There's a whole team of case management that does the work for you in terms of making sure that these patients have really good follow-up care scheduled, not just having the patient call and do that thing on their own, but making sure that that's actually completed. They have a good follow-up appointment schedule. They have a good therapist. They have good support back home. And then on the on the very back end of it, and probably like an important catch-all is to have a really good alumni program. So that, that ability to create an, a, a community for our patients once they graduate. So sort of from the very beginning, from the detox perspective and making sure that medical component is there and then everything in between. I think that's so great. And just as providers, I loved how you talked about half the issue is just while they're there in treatment. But like you said, it's that linkage to care, what happens afterward and making sure that we have good follow-up. I, I can't I can't tell you how many times you get patients that show up in your office like and you you have no idea what's happened to them for the last 30 or 45 or 90 days and they're pretty hazy. And so when you have that appointment made for them. So we don't have that gap in care. They don't have gap in medicine. And when we have that seamless transition, the patients do so much better that we we need to make sure that every level of care that they're getting that good transition. There was one, yeah, when I was just doing some research, there was one article that I was reading. It talked about just really, and this is from the provider's you know, perspective, but but they talked about when you're looking at programs, just thinking about everyone kind of will advertise and tout this. We provide individualized care to our patients in treatment. But if you see a program out there, it's like, well, every patient goes in, like you said, you have certain payers that sometimes it is payer dictated and you're kind of, you know, whether we like it or not, sometimes we do get kind of stuck in that. But if you see every patient goes in and every patient's there five days and and they're and they're out, whether they should be or not, then we need to kind of think about like, okay, how is that program being ran? And if you look at like 10 charts and their treatment plan is basically all the same, like everybody comes in and they have the same standing orders, the same treatment plan. We're not really individualizing to the patient. Like, are we really taking into all these dimensions of care? Are we really looking at that and and tailoring a treatment plan to them? So those are some things just to think about when we're vetting programs that we want to be referring patients to. Are they looking at the individual nuances of our patients and what they need and individualizing their care to that? And a good program will know what they don't know. And be willing to say that and own that. Yeah. I am not, I am the first That's to raise my hand and say, look, this, this program is not the right fit for you, but here's four others that are paneled with your insurance or that are close to your home or that are accessible to you that I think might be a better fit. Let's get you plugged in. Let's have, let's connect you with these right people. That accountability is so important. Right. And I think just in addition to that, remembering, and even though patients may need this highest level of care at some point in their use, right? The severity might necessitate that. And we talked about how we determine that. Residential treatment is typically a fraction of the person's overall recovery story. Oh, true. And the longer, the better. I mean, 
we've got to keep that in mind because a lot of people and families they go they're going to go to rehab and then everything's going to be better or patients think that this is it for them and they invest a lot of resources and time doing that and yet the work has just begun and hopefully that's a place where they can go be away from like you said daria the playground and the playmates to get ahead and get working on some deeper issues and get a stable environment maybe get medication stabilized get some really good individual therapy group work done to then set the stage for the ongoing work that sometimes takes years and years to really sink in or to work or to get people into remission. Sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it does. And not everybody needs it. Some people need it more than once too. Like going into residential treatment sometimes is is required more than once. And again, it's just looking at what level of care is right for your patient and where should they go. And I think it's worthwhile putting a word of caution out, saying that a lot of residential programs are purely for profit they really just are out to make a lot of money because it is a cash cow, especially in certain states. Yeah. So we really, as medical providers, clinical providers, we need to be really careful that like what you were just saying, patients are not just marketed and families are not um, taken advantage of. We've all known families that have paid out, especially when they have the means, thousands and thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars for residential programs that weren't necessarily the right fit or that led families and patients on that they were giving them something that, that was not all the whole picture. Right. So we have to be careful of that. Absolutely. Which makes it so I'm, I'm so honored um, Paula and Darlene to know the two of you, because that relationships that the patients have with you guys on the outpatient basis, that, that trust that they have in you, that's really the magic, you know, all of this other, treatment it's all and and there's so much value to it but that long that longevity that that the longer that goes on like you were saying Paula it's not you know that's where the magic happens that you're not suddenly going to be fixed you're going to do these things but maintaining that is where the important piece is is that that maintenance with your outpatient providers right and you said that at the beginning so I love that we've kind of come full circle to that (laughs) Is there anything else, Daria, that we've missed or any last um, things you want to say in summary and then we'll wrap it up? Please don't feel like you're out alone. And um, even as the provider, we're working on this as a team. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.